We invite you to take your Bible, go to Mark chapter 3 with me this morning. We're going to start in verse 7, go through verse 19 this morning. You, you just saw uh, what's going to be our final video for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And, and as I've said the, the past few weeks, let me say one more time, uh, let me just commend you on your uh, faithful giving throughout this, this season. Um, Rhonda sent me the, the final totals or, or the totals through the end of uh, this past week, and we met our uh, uh, goal for Annie Armstrong. Uh, we surpassed that by a little over $100, so we set a goal for $2,500, and, and uh, the last figure that I saw, we brought in just over 2600 So let me, let me commend you on your faithful giving, both to our budget um, and to uh, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Um, from a financial standpoint, um, April was our was our strongest uh, month so far uh, this this year in a month when we could not meet together at all. And uh, so you, you are to be commended for your faithful giving. And let me just encourage you to keep that up. Um, you, you are a blessing and the Lord is working mightily, I believe, through First Baptist Church, through the people of First Baptist Church, as we continue to faithfully love one another, serve faithfully, give uh, sacrificially through these days. Um, this morning we turn our attention to, to Mark chapter 3, uh, and um, you, you, you remember the last few weeks we looked at some confrontations between Jesus and uh, the religious leaders, and in fact, between the beginning of chapter 2 through where we were last week at the end of verse 6 in chapter 3, there were five confrontations that Jesus had with the religious leaders, and it ends um, at the end of verse 6, saying that the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. We said that uh, really through these five confrontations, and especially the last one, uh, the, the two questions about the Sabbath, um, in, in fighting against the religious leaders, Jesus, in effect, seals his death warrant. And uh, because he is, he is fighting against these, not, not God's law, obviously, but against the, the man-made additions to God's law. And ultimately, from, from the human standpoint, those will lead to uh, Jesus' arrest and death. But his ministry doesn't stop just because the, the religious leaders and others start plotting against him. That, that doesn't stop his, um, his seeking to, to do good and his seeking to teach. And so this morning we're going to see really a shift from his focus on the crowds to his focus on the twelve and on a much smaller group. And um, that's what we'll see this morning is Jesus calling out specifically the disciples whom we know as the twelve. So if you have your copy of scripture with you there, follow along with me. We're going to start in uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 7. The word of the Lord says this. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, uh, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many who had diseases, uh, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Verse 13, Jesus went up to the mountain, summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, 
to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee and to his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for, so much for this passage and for the opportunity that we have to open up your word and to see how you called out the, the 12 disciples to come and spend time with you. And so much of what we know about your teaching comes through the, the, the ways that, that Christ interacted with, with the disciples. So much that we see of the nature and the character of God that's made manifest in the life of Jesus happens through his interaction and his teaching alongside his disciples. And so I pray this morning and in the weeks coming that you would open our eyes to see how Jesus responds to people. How he calls undeserving sinners to himself. I pray you would do that powerfully even today. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so as I said, this morning really represents a bit of a shift, right? And how from, from Jesus really addressing crowds and dealing with crowds to spending more and more time with this small group of disciples. Um, and so the first thing we're going to see is that in, in verses 7 through 12, Jesus really begins to feel the pressure of the crowds. Um, now, now we've, we've looked at this before, right? That, that Jesus, is, as he heals people, as, as he performs these miracles, more and more people are coming to him to see what's going on. And yet in verse 7, we, we get this idea that, that Jesus really wanted to get away with those who were following him, not just to build bigger and bigger crowds. Now, this when it says in verse 7, Jesus departed with his disciples, that would have included, but it would not, that would not have been limited just to the 12 because they're not called until verse 13. They're not specifically called out until that, that section of the passage. So Jesus is, is trying to get away with those who are following him, not just those who are curious to see if he's going to perform another magic trick. And what we see here is that Jesus could draw a crowd like no one else in history. Now, as a culture, we, we are certainly still enamored with celebrities. We, we see, well, at least before quarantines hit, we, we saw in, in our culture that just this fascination with, with celebrities. And, and I remember um, in the summer of 2001, in my little town of Tohoka, Texas, the Dixie Chicks showed up on an afternoon. Now, now that's almost 20 years ago, but you got to understand, 2001, the Dixie Chicks were a big deal, especially in West Texas, uh, with lead singer Natalie Maines coming, being, being from Lubbock. And um, nobody knew they were coming. They, their tour bus just shows up one day, and they start doing this photo shoot right in the middle of downtown Tohoka. Uh, there, and there's not much to downtown Tohoka, Texas. Uh, but they found this little alleyway behind... Um, our local newspaper office and did some photo shoots then went outside of town and, and did, did some, some, took some pictures that wound up on one of their album covers. 
And it didn't take long before news spread, right? And, and suddenly, our, our little town of 2,000 people, our downtown was flooded for everybody just to see the Dixie Chicks. And, and, and by, by sea, I mean there was about a 30-foot gap between their bus and this alley they were taking pictures in. And they would go into their bus and change clothes and get out and walk. And as they walked, like, people just lost their minds because it was, it was the Dixie Chicks. Now, take that and multiply it. Jesus drew a crowd like no one else in history. People were flocking to Jesus. Because they had heard that he could heal people. They had heard that he could perform these miracles. And in in verses 7 and 8 here, we're told that crowds came from all over the place. You see this list of these towns and these regions. People flocked from there to come see Jesus. In verse 7, we're told this. The the large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. But here's the thing, right? People came to, to see Jesus not so much to follow him, but because of what he was doing. He was amazing them as he performed miracles. And so, so many that were in the crowd, in fact, I would, I would even venture to say the vast majority of those in the crowd did not come to Jesus because they wanted to be taught. They came because they wanted to be thrilled. They came to be entertained, to see a magic trick. Later on, as, as Jesus feeds the, the 5,000, what we'll see is people came to Jesus because they got a free meal and they, they showed back up expecting the same thing again. Now, Jesus, of course, was not out just to put on magic shows. That's not why he came. His mission was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. But so many in the crowd weren't interested in that. They didn't want to hear him preach. In fact, as, as I picture this in my mind's eye now, now understand, okay, this is my imagination. This is not scripture, but this is, this is how I picture it. I, I picture it as, as he begins pointing, at, pointing to a truth about the kingdom of God. Somebody would cry out and, and say, stop talking and just, just show us something impressive. But the, the point of Jesus' miracles was never just to amaze people it was always to make a point about the kingdom of God in fact in the gospel of John Jesus's miracles are frequently referred to as signs so they weren't just miracles to astound people they were they were signs pointing to who he was as the Messiah as word about him spreads the crowds come in and in fact in verse 9 we're told then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowds wouldn't crush him crowds were swarming him just to see him do something amazing not only that they were told uh, verse 10 since he had healed many all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. So you have, you have crowds who just want to see him. You have those who have diseases who are, who are showing up just in, in the hopes that, that they can touch him and 
and be healed. Now, you remember that, that Jesus told some that he had healed not to tell anyone. And that may seem like kind of an, an odd um, request to us, an odd command that, that these people just experienced a great miracle. And here Jesus is saying, don't, don't tell anybody about this. Well, the, the reason for that is because this is the result. The crowds would crush, there would be a, a, almost a crush of a crowd so that Jesus could no longer proclaim the kingdom of God because he was being surrounded. And so he attempts to get away with his disciples. And then in verse 11, we're, we're told that these unclean spirits when they saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. Verse 12, And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Now, now this may seem a little odd to us as well. You have these demons that are proclaiming the truth about who Jesus was and he's silencing them. Why would he do that? Well, for one, Jesus didn't need demons preaching about who he was. In fact, there was even a belief that, if, that, that, that if, uh, if, if someone spoke the name of a spirit, they could control it. So, so there may be an instance here where, where if, if Jesus gave credence to what the demons were saying, it would almost be like he was submitting to their authority. And we know very clearly from Scripture that Jesus will submit to no one's authority. Jesus, in fact, has all power and all authority. Secondly, Jesus would not be declared to be the Son of God by a person until after his resurrection. So it's possible that if word got out that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, his ministry on earth would be hindered even further. In fact, several times throughout Scripture we see this phrase, his time had not yet come. We see Jesus himself saying that in John 2. Um, when, when he turns the water into wine, his mother approaches him and says, can't you do something? His, his response to her is, my time has not yet come. We see a couple of other places throughout uh, Scripture, throughout the, New, the, the Gospels especially, where um, crowds are trying to overpower him, and, and it says they, they wanted to force him to be king, or they, they, they gathered to shove him over the edge of a cliff. And all scripture says is, but his time had not yet come. And he gets away from the crowds, whether they were seeking to crown him or to kill him. So why does Mark point this out? Because that, that seems like a really interesting phrase, right? The demons would, would fall down before him, cry out, you were the son of God. And, and he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Why, why, why does Mark point this out? It's, it's possible, and I think this, this has some merit, that Mark is contrasting this declaration by the demons with the religious leader's stubborn refusal to accept Jesus as the Messiah sent from God. See, the religious leaders refuse to acknowledge that, and here you have even demons making this truth known, proclaiming this truth of the gospel. So we see the crowds crushing around Jesus. 
maybe even hindering his ministry. So he seeks to get away with his disciples. And then starting in verse 13, we see Jesus pull away with his disciples. Now, we're not told this here, but in, uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, we're actually told that Jesus spent all night praying on the mountain before he called his disciples, before he called the 12 to him. So, so as I said, the, the 12 were not the only disciples of Jesus. He had other people who were following him. At this point, we don't know exactly how many. In Acts 1, after the, um, after the resurrection and, and Jesus' ascension 10 days later, we're told that uh, the believers were gathered together in a house and there were about 120 of them. So at that point, those at least who were willing to gather to, be, to, to uh, have made this public profession of faith, as we might call it today, were about 120 people gathered together. So we can... We know that, that the 12 disciples weren't the only ones. We do know those were kind of Jesus' core. Those, those were the, the, the ones whom he taught primarily. He spent most of his time with. As the Gospels go on, Jesus is going to spend more and more time with his disciples and less and less time with the crowds. And the, the 12 disciples become the primary audience for much of the rest of his ministry. Verse 13 tells us Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. So these apostles, the, the men whom, who spent time with Jesus on earth, were given special authority, and, and they were given special authority to, to, for three things here. First of all, um, he called them to be with him. And that's the primary thing. That's the primary calling for any follower of Christ is to be with Jesus. See, the call to, to become a Christian is not just a call to eternal life. It's not a call primarily even to serve. The call is first and foremost to come to Jesus. Secondly, we, we see that, he, that they were called and then sent out to preach. So, so these 12 men have a, have a special assignment to preach. Certainly we see that now. Well, well we would say that all believers are called to, to share the gospel. We, we know that some are, are called out specifically to preach the gospel, to, to make that their, their living, their full-time job. And then finally, in verse 15, and, and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, again, you'll notice that these were special assignments given to the 12. So these were not laid out, just kind of a blanket statement to all of Jesus' disciples. They, they were given to a few. And from, from a Southern Baptist standpoint, um, I'm going to argue that that last one especially um, was a, the, the, uh, the authority to drive out demons. I'm, I'm going to fall on the side of saying that that was specific to those first apostles. Okay? That was a special ministry they were called to, to carry on or to be the hands and feet of Jesus in, uh, in the areas that they traveled to. And we'll see a little bit later in the gospel as they're sent out. Okay, so their, their calling was threefold, to be with him, 
to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. One of the things that we see here is is that the primary learning for these 12 disciples will not happen in a classroom atmosphere, but it will happen as they spend time with Jesus. In fact, most, the vast majority of the teaching that we have of Jesus is not him addressing crowds, but it's teaching his disciples as they're going along the road. Think about the, uh, the parable of the fig tree, for instance. As they're walking down the road, they, they come upon some fig trees, and Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this. As they're walking past the temple, Jesus will will see the temple and he'll say the kingdom of God is like this. So so much of the the teaching that we have of Jesus is object lessons that happen in daily life with his disciples. As they spent time with him, he taught them truths about the kingdom of God. I, I think there's some principles for us there when it comes to discipleship. Classes are well and good, and we, we love our small groups, and I'm excited for the time when we can get back together in small groups. But, but real transformation happens in the context of real life. That means that in order to see disciples made, it, it happens beyond an hour in a Sunday school class and an hour in worship on Sunday morning. It happens as we spend time with one another in life. Now, briefly, let's take a look at these men who make up the 12. Several of them, we don't know really anything else about them other than the fact that they were part of the 12. They were the disciples whom Jesus called to himself. And if you look throughout the Gospels, you'll see a few different lists. Sometimes um, guys are in different orders, and, and there's one or two where, where actually different names are given, and there's some, there's some explanations for that. I don't have time to get into uh, but if you, if you do a little bit of research, you can figure out that um, some of these guys had different names, right? We see Simon, whom Jesus changed his name to Peter. Um, and so th- there's, th- that can be pretty easily reconciled. But throughout all the lists in the New Testament, there are always two things that are true. Simon Peter is always first, and Judas Iscariot is always last. So Simon Peter's always listed first, and Peter's name means rock. It's it's generally accepted that he was the uh, earthly leader of the early disciples, as well as one of the key leaders of the early church. Peter would be one of Jesus' right-hand men, along with James and John, whom we'll talk about in just a second. And then Peter becomes one of the most influential leaders in the early church. Then we get to James and John, who are, who are fishermen brothers. Um, we've already looked at in, earlier in, in chapter 1 when Jesus calls them. Um, and here they're, they're given this nickname, Sons of Thunder, um, which a lot of experts, a lot of scholars believe that that alludes to their fiery tempers that they had. Now, as, as fishermen, you can imagine these weren't, um, these weren't scrawny guys. They, they probably had a little bit of bulk to them. And... Apparently, they had some fiery tempers. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, they actually asked Jesus if they can call down fire to consume a town that rejected them. This this town rejects them, and and, and they they look at Jesus, and they're like, do you want us to call fire down and and kill these people? 
To which Jesus says, no, that's not how this works. Okay? But we see just a little bit about their, I mean, they're, they're ambitious and, and they, they love Jesus and they really take it personally when people reject him. These two will also become key leaders in the early church. In fact, um, James will become one of the early martyrs of the church. Okay? So and these two men become um, the other three within Jesus' inner circle within his disciples. So you have the, the 12 that kind of form his, his core, and then you have the, the three, Peter, James, and John, that really become his inner circle. And they get to see things that nobody else sees. They see Jesus transfigured um, before before their very eyes. They see Jesus in all of his glory. And we'll cover that in, in coming months as well. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the calling of Levi, or, or Matthew is, was his uh, other name, the, the tax collector. We also see there was a man named Simon the Zealot, and this would have made for interesting dinner conversation for the disciples because the Zealots were a group of uh, Jewish extremist is, is a pretty good description, who were bent on using any possible means to further their cause. Uh, I've even read some descriptions that almost liken them to, to like a modern day uh, religious terrorist. They were just, that they were that, that they're zealot. They were zealous for their God and, and to the point they were willing to do whatever it took to further the cause, even if that meant violence. And then you have Matthew, who's a Jew, who, as we've already talked about, sold himself out to the, to the Roman government to be a tax collector. So you're talking about somebody that, as for Simon the Zealot, he would have absolutely hated Matthew, would have seen him as a betrayer of, of their God, and yet here they are, both called as disciples of Christ. We see this, this reconciliation between people who would, no, who would normally hate one another, and suddenly they're following Jesus together. This is the power of the gospel. Heals differences, brings people together with different personalities, different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and, and out of these differences makes one people as followers of Christ. That's one of the many things, the power of the gospel does it unites people who otherwise have nothing in common around the person of Jesus and then we see Judas and and don't miss this Judas was called by Jesus specifically to follow him now we'll know as, as we get towards the end of this gospel Maybe you already know the story that Judas betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Roman authorities. But Judas was called by Christ to be a follower. He had a role to play in the disciples. In fact, we see he, he actually becomes the treasurer. He keeps the money bag. Now, what do we do with, with Judas? Questions will often arise, well, was he actually a, a follower? Was he a believer in Christ? And, and, and there's, there's some arguments to be made for, for either side of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I'm going to err on the side of no, I don't think he was. I, I don't think he ever surrendered his life to Christ. But I'm also going to 
say, I believe there was always the opportunity for him to do that. I believe Jesus never gave up on Judas. Until that last moment where he actually went through with betraying the Lord, he had the opportunity to turn from his sins. What we see in Judas is that we see Jesus' patience with sinners. The ways that he is long-suffering with us. At the end of the day, when we look at this list of 12 apostles, what we see is that these are ordinary people whom God used in extraordinary ways. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. And Jesus called to himself and then sent out to proclaim the good news of the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascends, he has the, the 11 disciples there together. At this point, Judas had already hung himself out of remorse for his betrayal. So the remaining 11 are gathered with Jesus right before he ascends into heaven. And they're beginning to ask Jesus these questions like, hey, what's going to happen next? Um, what do we do now? And these are the last words Jesus gives them before he ascends into heaven. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These ordinary men are sent out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, beginning in Jerusalem, carrying all the way to the very ends of the earth. And of course, the rest of the book of Acts fleshes out exactly how that happens. And these men turn the world upside down, not because of their great abilities, not because they were so smart, not because they had so much education, but because they had been with Jesus. Folks, this is the hope for us. The primary requirement, the primary calling of a follower of Christ is that we come to Jesus. That we come and follow him. The call to follow Jesus isn't primarily to, to, to be in a class. It's not primarily to do anything. It's to be with him. A great book that would flesh this out just a little bit more, if you're, if you're interested, a really easy read, is a, a classic book by, the, uh, by Robert Coleman called The Master Plan of Evangelism. He lays out how Jesus, uh, his primary strategy to win the world was to spend time with people, primarily with his disciples. So believer, hear, hear this. Your primary calling in life is to be with Jesus. And, and yes, we, we, there's lots of things that we talk about, right? Church attendance is good where we're gathered with the people of God. Sunday school classes, other small groups are good where we gather together to study God's word. We're called to evangelize. We're called to share the, the good news. But all that comes out of spending time with Jesus. 
See, if we spend time with Jesus, if, if, if we fall in love with him and our hearts are, are in tune with his, we're going to want to spend time with his people. We're going to want to learn more about his word alongside other believers. We're going to want to tell other people about this Messiah whom we know so well. So here's my prayer in, in these days. We don't know if, if these, you know, these days of stay-at-home orders and all that, or if they're winding down. We don't know how much longer they're going to last. But let me, let me plead with you. Spend time with Jesus in these days. Find some moments of quiet. Get alone with, with your Bible. Spend time reading it. Spend time in prayer. Asking him to tune our hearts to his. And, and I believe the rest of these will come as we do that, as we fall more deeply in love with Jesus. We'll do the things he's asked us to do with joy and gladness. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, let, let, me, let me say the same thing to you. The, the call to follow Jesus is not primarily a call to do anything other than to be with Jesus. It's called to lay down your sin and come to Christ. If you've never done that before, you can, you can do that this morning through, through this simple prayer. There's no magic words here, just a, uh, some, some words to help you frame how you might pray to him. You can, you can simply say this, Lord Jesus, my life is broken. I recognize it's because of my sin and I need you. I believe Christ came to live, die, and was raised from the dead to rescue me from my sin. Forgive me. I turn from my selfish ways and put my trust in you. I know that Jesus is Lord of all. Look at this last part. And I will follow him. That's, that's the call. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ. If you'd like to know more about how to do it you can send us a message on facebook you can fill out the form on the on the bottom of the website below the um, the, the live stream box i'd love to visit with you this week pray with you share with you a little bit more about what it means to follow christ believers this week carve out some time to spend time with christ let us as a church body follow him in our individual lives, which will lead to us following him as his body, the church. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you once again for the blessing of technology that allows us to meet even when we can't be in person. I pray, I pray we would quickly be able to gather together again in this room. We would fill our hearts with joy as we anticipate that day. This week, help us to follow you. Amid all the other chaos in our world, amid all the other um, pressing issues that, that come up from day to day, will you remind us to spend time with you, to be obedient to the things that you've called us to.
Thank you so much for the privilege of knowing you. For your sending Christ Jesus to earth to forgive our sins. To restore us to a right relationship with you. May your name be glorified in everything that we say and do.